Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast. On this episode, D is for Die Another Day, the 2002 James Bond film, James Bond 20. It stars Pierce Brosnan as 007 for his fourth and final James Bond film. As always, my name is Tom Butler and joining me on this mission to Iceland via North Korea and Cuba is a man known for keeping his tip up and never sleeping. It's Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello. <laughs> and dialing in from sunnier climes, three mojitos deep and feasting after dark, having recently got a refund for gene replacement therapy when he found out it couldn't cure being short or ginger is Mr. Tom Wheatley. Have you lost your job or something? You've got a lot more time on your hands than usual. How are you uh, both? Hello. Did you like your new intro? Yeah, you're doing this every week. Yeah, or... is that going to be a new one every week related yeah. to the episode? You're setting the bar quite high with this. Yeah. When next week you're coming to go, hello. Yeah, it's me again. Yeah. Well, I just thought I'd give it a bit of extra oomph for this uh, episode because um, this is a film with extra oomph. Yeah, as always with these film specials, um, the episode is going to focus on the making of the film. We'll be diving into the filmmaking process in chronological order and all the major characters and the filmmakers will appear in more detail in their own corresponding episodes down the line. So if it feels like we're skimming over details, you can refer to other episodes for more information on the other people. The episode will end, we'll we'll rank Die Another Day compared to the four other Bond films we've done so far in in detail. As we did with Diamonds Are Forever, I put it out to our followers on Twitter for some three-word reviews of Die Another Day. You guys ready to hear some of them? Yeah, looking forward to it. Okay, so Chris Davis, he kind of cheated. He went with Bad Bond Movie, Decent Action action Movie. So that's six. Evan Leiter, this is on the positive side, Great Bond Film. Someone called Quantum of Gel at Gemel said, well-made misfire. Torsten Scheib, Y-O-Y. Yeah, uh, like that one. Good. Yeah. Bart Verbank said, needs more CGI. Which, uh, <laughs> yeah, very true. Yeah. Yep. Shayla says, far-fetched fun. The guys from Really 007 podcast, they messaged to say, so much fun. And Darren Leakley said, far too fantastical. And I think my favorite would be, I'll do it in three letters, CGI. And that's from someone called at mucky one. <laughs> so uh, some interesting a range of opinions there. Actually, my favorite here is from Tom Mason. He just said mojito, which I thought was quite funny. 
But yeah, that's their three word reviews. Obviously, the film has a bit of a bad rep and often comes quite low down on the rankings. But we're going to look at the film quite subjectively. And I guess we'll talk about what we think about the film as we go along. Do you know, have you guys read what Roger Moore said about Die Another Day? Oh, yes. yes. I've, got, I've got that quote written down. I might yeah. get it tattooed. <laughs> Roger Moore, according to this quote, said, I thought it just went too far. And that's from me, the first Bond in space. Invisible cars and dodgy CGI footage, please. So that's quite interesting, I thought, that Sir Roger would say that about it. doesn't sound like something Sir Roger would say. So let's kick things off with a summary of the plot, Brendan. So set the Good scene. luck with this, Brendan. <laughs> I am doing a lot of skimming here because if I, if I deep dive too much, it's going to be a long one. So we're in North Korea. That's where we start off. And Bond is on a mission again. And he kills Colonel Moon, who is trading blood diamonds for weapons. And during this fight, he disfigures Zhao. And that's what gives him the, the iconic diamond face. He's then captured. So against, you know, a lot of what we've seen before, uh, this is all pre-credits. Bond's captured and he spends 14 months captivated before being exchanged for Zhao, who had been captured by MI6. MI6 thought Bond had cracked under all the torture that he'd, uh, they'd give him. And so M deems him useless and sort of lets him go. Bond tracks Zhao down uh, of his own accord. He goes to a clinic in uh, Havana. And he meets Jinx, who is an NSA agent. And they find out that Zhao is receiving DNA therapy to alter his appearance. Stay with me here. Stay with me. After Zhao escapes from the clinic, then they Bond follows the diamonds and they end up in London and then with a billionaire called Gustav Graves via a cameo from the song London Calling. Interesting. Oh, God. Which we'll uh, talk about, I'm sure. Very important part of the script there. Yes. Well, it's so jarring that it is. <laughs> and so Bond and M suspect Graves Graves is uh, involved in something a bit more sinister. So she, uh, M has planted Miranda Frost, another agent, uh, an MI6 agent, as his assistant and also gives Bond back his status as a double O agent. Bond then goes off to Iceland and Graves unveils a project called Icarus, and it's a big laser satellite. So then they, they uh, work together, Bond and Jinx, uh, the Americans and the British working together, and they discover that Graves is actually Moon, and he's undergone that DNA therapy. So Moon then plans to use Icarus to help North Korea to invade the South and then eventually the West. But Bond and Jinx then go, they get onto a plane that he's on, cargo plane. Jinx kills Miranda Frost, who is a double agent and had switched allegiances. And then Bond kills Moon while he's in a, a ridiculous sort of suit, like a, like a super suit. Power Ranger suit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, so they prevent the invasion. They fall out of a, a plane that's going down in a helicopter. So they get in a helicopter, fall out the back of it, manage to save themselves and they get away with the diamonds and that's it credits that's um jesus it's convoluted yeah but um <laughs> so before we talk about the uh, the production of the film let's look at the year that this film came out obviously as i mentioned this is the 20th james bond film and it landed in a anniversary year but what else was going on in 2002 
quite a lot. In terms of films, there there was quite a lot going on. It was a big year for sort of big blockbusters, early 2000 blockbusters, things like Spider-Man. Spider-Man was the highest grossing film of that year. Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, Star Wars Episode Two, Harry Potter and Chamber of Secrets, lots of big, big sequels. Um, Austin Powers and Goldmember, which we'll talk more about in a bit. Men in Black 2, and then loads of other films as well. So The Bourne Identity came out that year, which is very important for this film. Minority Report, Gangs of New York, stuff like that. Uh, Some of All Fears, which is kind of related, Phone Booth. So it's a big, big year for films, lots going on. And I think the cinema world was starting to change quite a bit around this time from what were sort of 90s style films. And it it was changing towards this newer format of films that was coming about. But and as you as you can imagine, Die Another Day had a lot of it had an effect on Die Another Day and how that film was made. But at the same time, lots was going on at MGM as well. So um, I'm not going to go too much into too much depth about this whole MGM thing because we're probably going to do this, I imagine, at a later date and go into more depth on it. But basically, there was lots of big legal discussions happening in the background before Die Another Day was made and after. Die Another Day was made. And at the time, MGM was in discussions. It was having rather in-depth discussions with Sony um, around that time, before that time, around the ownership of the James Bond rights. And that included stuff to do with Kevin McClory and the ownership of the Casino Royale script. So there's a lot of that going on, but eventually it got the rights to to James Bond. But at the same time, I read a really interesting article about MGM around 2002 that it was actually looking for mergers and was actually being put up for sale around that time as well because um, it couldn't compete with some of the massive studios that were out at the time. Like um, Not so much studios, but companies like AOL, Time Warner, uh, Universal and News Corp, which just were massive and MGM couldn't compete with them. So it was looking at sort of these bigger deals and and finding a way to to merge with um, at one point Sony. They were trying to merge originally with Sony back in in those days, but that was scuppered. And apparently they were looking for a price of seven billion for the studio at the time, but Wall Street valued it at about five billion. So kind of a big deal for MGM at the time. And MGM hadn't had many big blockbusters. It doesn't. It didn't have many sort of you know crowning jewel things apart from Bond. So um, all these other studios are making really big films. You can see from that list there with stuff like Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and things. They were, you know, they were the ones that were making the money at the time. MGM didn't really have any of these things. So Die Another Day was a massive thing for it because it was the first film or first Bond film that they released in in partnership or as part of this um, Sony deal. So it had to make a lot of money. It had to go big and it had to sort of improve on the last two Bond films. And if you remember from World Is Not Enough and Tomorrow Never Dies, they made quite a lot of money at the cinema and they needed that to continue. Yeah, tricky time for MGM and, and the Bond franchise and probably something that, you know, when it came to Casino Royale, they, they did take risks. But with Die Another Day, they they couldn't. They had to make money and they had to, they had to do it the way that they knew they could. So yeah, that's 2002 and the world of film at the time. It was the time that, was it that, Brosnan was reported to be the billion dollar Bond because his three films had made a billion dollars at that point. And so according to sources, MGM upped the budget for Die Another Day from the budget for The World Is Not Enough. Reportedly, the budget for Die Another Day was $142 million, which adjusted for today's money is $215 million, which puts it in the same sort of ballpark as, well, you know, any any other big 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 blockbuster of the, of the yeah. modern era. So it was more than tw- the world is not enough, which was 135 million. 
Yeah. And if that... Well, it's, it's, it's basically putting all your eggs in one basket, isn't it? Because that's the big thing that they've got. The, yeah. the one thing that they know is, is exactly. going to make money. So you've got to put everything you've got into it. Yeah, put all your money on red. If that number is correct, $142 million, it means it had a bigger budget than Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, which you said was the highest grossing film of the year, $139 million. It had a bigger budget than Attack of the Clones, Star Wars 2, Attack of the Clones, which had a $120 million budget. And in 2006, Casino Royale had a budget of $150 million. So you can see it's like, it's it's one of the big guys. And talking about the increasing budget from The World Is Not Enough, MGM executive Chris McKirk is reported as saying, both from a casting standpoint and in terms of production values, we really felt we had to step up and spend more money in order to be competitive. So it's a big, big year in 2002 for Bond in general. So the, the film is the 20th and is in the series. It was also it was also 50 years since Ian Fleming uh, finished his first draft of Casino Royale and the 40th anniversary of the release of Doctor No. So absolutely huge year for the Bond series, which... Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson thought they could capitalise on it and that would make sense. And it also explains why they shifted, because if you look at Brosnan's release dates, they're a little bit closer together, but this one is a little bit longer, just so they can get that nice, nice, neat matching up of all the anniversaries. So yeah, in, in terms of that, um, I'll, I'll be covering later on when we get to post-production, what, what was done for these anniversaries. That's where it's at. That's why it was released when it was. So let's let's get into pre-production. So yeah, pre-production. So the first person that we should probably talk about when it comes to pre-production is the director. And as as you know, by this point, Bond directors change quite a lot. Not like the old days where you had the same sort of directors coming in and out of loads and loads and loads of films. So the director that they brought in at this point was Lee Tamahori. Now I don't know, or I didn't know a lot about Lee Tamahori until researching this. I've never seen Once Were Warriors. Have you both seen that? Uh, no, it's it's kind of his um, piece de resistance, and essentially the reason that he got picked to do, be the director on this film, and it's the the thing that he gets referenced for, even by like Barbara Broccoli and people. It broke box office records back in New Zealand, which is where Lee Tamahori is from, and it was really critically well received um, all around the world. So it was kind of a big deal for him. And, th- and then after that, he did a few other things as well. So he did uh, Mulholland Falls, which I have seen and I quite liked. After that, he did a film called The Edge which is uh, an Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin sort of thriller in the wilderness. And he also filmed an, a directing episode of Sopranos. And he did a film called Along Came a Spider, which I'm sure you've seen, Butler. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So that was really it. They were, That's all he'd done up until that point. So he's not like a you know sort of director that's been around for a long time. He's more in that sort of Michael Apted vein in that he's a bit of a risk. You know, they've seen uh, Michael and Barbara have seen something he's done. They liked it. It was more to do with probably the fact that they'd seen a couple of the films and they really liked the style of what he was doing and they took a gamble on him and thought, this guy's going to bring something new. And in a lot of articles I've read about this, it seemed to be the way to go, especially in that period. Obviously, you've got changing directors quite a lot over the course of the, the later 90s and everyone is a little bit of a, hopefully this person will bring something new to Bond, which is a great way to do it, I suppose, if it works. According to Tamahori, he didn't really even know that the the job offer was going to come. He said that when it comes to Bond, it just came through, comes through your agent. Like your agent calls up and he says, do you want to do a Bond movie? And you have to think about it. And then you just say yes or no. And more often than not, I think most people will say yes, because 
you know, especially at that point in your career, if they've got in somebody, maybe some like Sam Mendes, he's he's probably got the ability to go. No, actually, I've got other things to do. But it certainly sounds like Lee Tamahori was at an earlier point of his career, and it would seem like a bit of a risk not to take the the chance to do a Bond film. He talks quite a lot about it. In he, he's done quite a lot of interviews. We we always talk about this when we kind of go through the directors and stuff. And with the older films. There's not a lot on them. They don't tend to do a lot of interviews. There's loads when you get to like Die Another Day. Like Lee Tamahori always do it, does loads of interviews. He's always talking about that film. He says various things about how he was he wanted to test himself on the size of the movie. He never did anything that big and he wanted to see what it was like. He wanted to use it as an opportunity to kind of break out. Yeah, he said that when he's when he was talking about Wilson and uh, uh, Broccoli choosing him, what was the reason? He said they're just looking, always looking for something new and a little different, which is good. If you're a director that hasn't done anything like that, and he said something quite interesting that, that that almost the people that get to direct Bond films never go out looking for them because there's always action directors and stuff that are desperately trying to get these Bond films. They're emailing, they're calling, they're having meetings with the producers, and they, that's not what they're looking for because, as Lee Tamahori says in an interview, they they can do that. They know they can do that. Like the action will sort itself out. It's not the action they need; it's the storyline they need, and that's what their focus was. So they'd seen that in Lee Tamahori, and that that was what they wanted to get out of it. And yeah, Barbara Rockley was really positive about him. She's saying that he, they wanted somebody to get the head around the franchise and the expectations that they had for it, and that Once Were Warriors is one of the greatest films made in the last fifty years. So Piers Brosnan talks a bit about Lee Tamahori, quite a bit actually. If you if you go have a look at the um, what's the book that we always use for research, <laughs> you remember it one day. Nobody does it better. Nobody does it better. <laughs> That's just when you go through the films in that they do generally have quite a lot about the actors, but there's so much about Lee Tamahori and the director side of it in that, which is really interesting. And Piers Brosnan talks a bit about it, and he's talking about how you know he likes the sort of the depth of the, the directing that he's doing basically about Once Were Warriors. And he also says that the films had gotten really far away from what used to happen back in the days of Connery. So he was saying that Lee was a good man for pulling it back down to earth um, (laughs) and keeping it reality-based and a character-driven piece. He was hungry for it and he'd made some really fine films. He he has an edge to him. It's like Martin Campbell. They're not dissimilar. Both New Zealanders and both have that kind of ferocious appetite for film, which I thought was interesting because I imagine if you said that to... Brosnan after the film I'm assuming this was before the film was released he's probably not going to use that line so yeah I, I, I won't go to too much death about Tamahori because I already have uh, and we'll, t- into- we'll do him in T for Tamahori as well so we'll, yes, we'll do we'll, a bit we'll more do him on him T for Tamahori Let's look at the script then. So The World Is Not Enough was released in 1999. That film was written by franchise newcomers Neil Purvis and Robert Wade and they were invited back to write their second James Bond film, Die Another Day. And work started on that film, uh, on this film in July 2000. You can see how quickly they got the ball rolling. It was only six, seven months after the film came out that they started working on it. Purvis and Wade, there's a good DVD extra where they're with... Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson and they're, they're talking about Fleming and going back to Fleming and seeing what's cool that's in the book that hasn't been used before and how they can incorporate that into a script and some of that comes through and what they really wanted to make is an espionage Cold War movie and Tamahori sort of agreed with them and he sort of looked at films like Ipocrest File and The Spy who came in from the cold as the sort of films he'd like to emulate. Robert Wade said, our key task was to make a Bond, make Bond a character rather than a caricature. We were trying to draw out his darker side. Um, and so, as always with these things, that at the time they looked to the real world for inspiration and they, they ended up looking at North Korea. 
1993, Bill Clinton had visited and he'd called the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea the scariest place on earth. And that really sort of resonated with the, with the writers and with Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson. Robert Wade said, we're all feeling the same about North Korea. It was the hot point in the world, the kind of country you don't go into. And also there was this discussion about how in the demilitarized zone that there was this huge minefield between the two countries. And that became quite an interesting point for them. Said that was an interesting idea. The image of the demilitarized zone as one of the last cold fronts stuffed with mines. And and it was at this point they sort of thought about the idea of Bond getting captured and traded for another spy. And originally the idea was that when Bond got captured, the rest of the film would be him escaping and returning to England across the world, which would have been quite an interesting Mm. idea. But they'd obviously decided that's just not what people expect from a James Bond movie. And that's something that that Broccoli and Wilson always talk about as well. It's got you've got to tick the boxes for what people expect. They also looked at You Only, you only Live Twice for, for inspiration. Um, they wanted to keep it realistic and not comic booky. <laughs> Again, which uh, when you've seen the final film is quite bizarre. So the idea for the Icarus project, which was a satellite that could turn the sun's light back onto Earth using a mirror, it's actually based on a real idea. So in 1993, there was an experiment called the Zanamya or the banner, which sent a giant mirror into space to reflect light to Earth. And that happened in 1993. And it was actually able to direct a beam of light two to two or three times as bright as the moon and two and a half miles wide down to the Earth's night sky. And it actually worked. But unfortunately, it burned up, um, re-entered in the atmosphere, and they were never able to replicate the success of that. So that's quite interesting that that mm. idea of, of Icarus came from real life. And another thing that came from real life is the ice palace because in Sweden every year, there's this thing called the Ice Hotel, which is built from real ice. And you can go and visit it and it's there every year. And they thought it was really interesting. And they sent Peter Lamont to investigate. And what he saw and what he discovered went into the script. The Ice Palace became a thing. Something else that they discovered in the real world that they wanted to include was this place called the Seagaya Ocean Dome, which was at the time one of the world's largest indoor water parks in Miyazaki in Japan. And it was the Polynesia-themed ocean dome that they wanted. And it was part of this huge resort called the Sheraton Seagaya. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but it looks insane. It was a 12,000 square meter sandy beach and it was filled with stones. It had an ocean uh, six times larger than an Olympic swimming pool. And it had uh, 28 degrees water in it. And it had a wave machine with 200 different variations of waves. And it looks absolutely insane. And it had the Guinness World Record for the biggest simulated pool. Fortunately, the, the water park was actually closed in 2007 and demolished in 2017, but they really wanted to use that in the film. And the, the climax of the film was originally set on this indoor beach in Japan, uh, but that eventually got dropped. Something else they took inspiration from was the idea of Bond being brainwashed in the Man with the Golden Gun book. And that sort of plays into the film when Bond returns from North Korea. And another idea they took from the book is the idea of Gustav Graves, which is a loose adaptation of Hugo Drax from Moonraker. Because Hugo Drax in the book assumes his identity as an English gentleman after basically escaping, I think, from Germany. Um, So he's like a, you know, a man undercover in British society. So just a few more things to mention about the script. There was originally a huge sequence in Hong Kong, that happened at the beginning of the film. So after Bond escapes from the boat, there was going to be a film, uh, an action set piece in two elevators in a, t- a tower block. And it was going to be like the Matrix. The, the, the lifts were going to be up and going up and down and the zero gravity was going to come in and Bond was going to be floating around. And that was eventually dropped because it was too expensive. And also at that point, 
Tomorrow Never Dies, Y Lin was going to make a cameo in that sequence as well. So that would have been interesting. So with the script, Purvis and Wade worked on it for a long time and then Lee Tamahori came in and it was expected that he would have his own input into it. And I think, as you mentioned with Tamahori, he'd never made a film on this level before. And I think almost the concept of it possibly daunted him. Um, So he had the hugest, biggest sandbox in the world to work in on a film. And possibly he felt that he needed to make the film that matched the budget. And I think this is where the the problem started to mount. So this is a quote from Tamahori. Yeah, actually, Neil Purvis said that he uh, that it was Tamahori that wanted to make the film more science fiction and comic booky to keep up with the other blockbusters of the era. And Tamahori himself said, once we started pulling the script apart and putting it back together again, and remarkably, it survived very intact. We kept t- tuning it e- up everything for seven months and even while we were shooting just to make sure. So you can see they were iterating on the script all the time, which I guess isn't unheard of on major films, but um, it's quite worrying on a huge budget film like this. And then um, Purvis and Wade had to come back in during shooting after they changed the third act very late in the day. Tamahori just dropped the idea of this Japanese indoor beach in favour of the airborne finale over North Korea, which, you know, works to a certain extent, but I think it's one of the weakest Bond finales, in my opinion. So, yeah, just one final thing. Tamahori said, in some ways, I wanted to get back to that old kind of old fashioned tough thriller. And then in the back end of it, I wanted to drive it into the 21st century with a new kind, a kind of new aggressive post-production and cutting and technique. And some of that plays into the film. I think you'll agree. But something happened. Certainly during, aggressive. Yeah, it's definitely aggressive. Something happened during pre-production, Brendan. Something that impacted the world and uh, still is the attacks 9-11 uh, in 2001 which if you remember that it affected a lot of films and TV, if you remember Spider-Man that had a scene involving the Twin Towers removed, and so it was affecting movies. The thing is about the, this movie, it was it was really deep into pre-production by this point. So, I mean, have you been able to find anything that massively changed apart from the small bits? No, I mean... They, I know- they added small bits of dialogue. Yeah. The whole him being captive for 14 months... That di- if you dial back from the release date, 14 months, it's pre-9-11, and M tells Bond that the world has changed, and he quits back. Well, I haven't. It feels a bit like a like a get-out clause for them. And it's interesting you say that Lee Tamahori favoured the, the finale on an aircraft. That seems not very in line with you know trying to be sensitive. <laughs> you definitely wouldn't want to do that, would you? No. So that, that, that is surprising. So obviously... Because it's so deep into production, you they have they they can't really change loads, and that's why you probably have to wait until Casino Royale to get the real changes that that this is this effect, and that's why you can just feel it sort of glossed glossed over. And I guess luckily enough they'd focused on North Korea, but they were working with Americans in the film, which is a an issue as well, isn't it? You would think that that would would make an effect, but. Yeah, and it's just one of those things, isn't it? Once you're in, in that far into production on such a big budget as well, so many people involved. Um, yeah. There was one report that I, said, that I read that said that there was a New York set finale that had to that they changed, but I, I couldn't really find much evidence of that. No, um, it's quite tricky to find anything about it, if anything was officially changed for it, apart from the dialogue, which is more than evident. You know, that's Yeah, and I think, I guess, the other way it, it, it impacted the film is, is that people's 
tastes and appetites for blockbuster and especially espionage stuff probably were more in line with Jason Bourne than than James Bond because they wanted something that showed real life reflected real mm. life possibly rather than this sort of fantasy which almost trivializes the idea of global terrorism um, yeah. yeah well yeah. that's the problem isn't it? you couldn't do a comedy film about like that sort of thing around that time and Die Another Day veers quite close to that sort of parody comedy style yeah which doesn't work too well whereas if you like Jason Bourne it's quite serious and kind of focuses on treats its matter seriously the real yeah causes. I mean, it's it's a huge subject, and I'm sure people have uh, really gone into depth on it, on the the psyche of what people, the fallout of it, and what people expect from their entertainment post nine eleven. Mm. Not die another day. Well, you say that, but it was a big box office hit. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about the name then. Die another day. So the title is. It's not derived from a Fleming book. It's one of the few. Bond films that doesn't actually use a, a title from one of his works. Um, the the reasoning for it in the story sense is that he kills Colonel Moon and he comes back to life, obviously, or he's still alive. And um, Bond says to him, so you live to die another day. Just inspired scripting there to get the uh, name of the film in. But actually, it's not just random name that they came up with that's based on the film. Uh, at a press conference in uh, 2002, Brosnan made a joke about it and he said to reporters that they were open to suggestions because they'd exhausted the original source material, which is kind of true, actually, because it wasn't until Casino Royale that they kind of got a lot of source material back again. So um, they had kind of run out of source material. But it, it was actually a, a phrase used by Ian Fleming Michael G. Wilson actually says that the, the phrase is from a poem by A. Houseman, which says, but since the man that runs away lives to die another day. And I think Bond uh, quotes this uh, during the film when um, he exposes Gustav Graves it, it being in disguise. I didn't notice that bit because I read this afterwards, but I might check that up. But Ian Fleming did say it as well. So in letters from Ian Fleming that he wrote to his secretary in 1960 about his up-and-coming novel Thunderball, he used the phrase... I still regret the end of Thunderball, as my naive and little mind would like to know exactly what happened. What about Blofeld? Or does he live to die another day? So it is a reference from Fleming, but none of his actual published work. Yeah, when they announced the film, uh, the press conference you just mentioned there, Pris Brosnan says you know, they don't have a title for it. And it was announced as Bond 20, very much in the same vein as No Time to Die was. And they had hundreds of titles, apparently. And one of them that kept recurring in the press was Beyond the Ice, and that was one that kept popping up that the press was saying it was called Beyond the Ice, much like No Time to Die was definitely called Shatterhand at some point, which is not yeah. true. But they said that even at that point, there's a, a clip of Purvis and Wade saying, you know, Beyond the Ice is the is the name people are calling it. And that could be the film title because anything is is fair game at the moment. Um, so they yeah. really were stuck for a name. But I thought Bond 20 would have been good or Bond XX. Well, considering <laughs> Lee Tamori directed Triple X. Yeah. <laughs> that title did live on to die another day yeah. <laughs> uh, okay so uh, beyond um, Lee Tamahori and Purvis and Wade uh, people involved on the film Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson as producers Callum McDougall as co-producer and Anthony Way as executive producer or Tony Way as he's known David Arnold returned for his third Bond film score which we'll talk about later 
Cinematography, interestingly, is by David Tattersall, a DOP who did all three Star Wars prequels. And I think you can see that glossy sheen on this film as well, (laughs) Uh, to a certain extent. (laughs) Uh, Film editing was by Andrew McRitchie and Christian Wagner. Production design by Peter Lamont. Vic Armstrong was second unit director doing stunts and what have you. And then costume design was by Lindy Hemming. And there is a great DVD extra, which I just shared with these two before we came to record, in which Lindy Hemming is asked about the state of the film and they're just about to start shooting. And she says the film is in awful shape (laughs) and that the script keeps changing and all the changes mean that, you know, the characters might change all of a sudden and might just render her work useless. So uh, she is... She says it's fine because it helps her to work under pressure, but you can read between the lines. This film is in trouble before shooting even begins. We've got some returning cast. Of course, we've got Pierce Brosnan back for his fourth and what turns out to be his final portrayal as Bond. Along with Judy Dench and Samantha Bond, they're all making their fourth appearances. Colin Salmon makes his third as Charles Robinson. And his sadly his final. He's a good character. I like. I like. Him. I love Colin Salmon in these yeah, films. Yeah, I think he's great. Um, you know, fun fun fact. Sorry, just to dive in, but he did the screen tests for all the actors for this film. Yes, I read that. Yeah, yeah. So he was playing Bond. In those yeah, films. and he was touted as a, as Bond at some point. Wasn't yeah, he? I remember that yeah. in the tabloids. They kept talking about him being the next Bond. John Cleese is back for his second film uh, as Q. I'm not sure who he played before. Oh. He, well, he was joked as R, wasn't it? But yeah. Uh, also, well, they, they change the code name, don't they? Because he's not the quartermaster then. No, they're introducing him, aren't they? Yeah. Deborah Moore, this is not a returning cast, but this is Deborah Moore and it's the daughter of Roger Moore. She plays the airline hostess, which that was quite mm-hmm. a nice, nice nod. Probably too busy getting angry about London Calling playing to, to notice though. And also Vincent Wong, he plays General Lee. And it's his third appearance in Bond film. Wow. First, first was in 1964 in Goldfinger as one of Goldfinger's henchmen. 1971, Diamonds Are Forever as a casino croupier. So Brilliant. That's great. That's quite nice. Yeah. So then we've got some villains, the new villains. And I, I've been pretty, uh, I've held off being negative about this film up until this point. But I think the villains is where we're... we're one of the major flaws in the film is I don't think it's so much the act- actors that play the villains. I think it's the villains themselves. So you've got Toby Stevens, of course, who plays Gustav Graves, who's basically in pantomime. And then Rosamund Pike, who's actually quite good, but strange character format, a very confusing character as well. And then, of course, Will Yun Lee plays Colonel Moon, who's Gustav Graves in the earlier scenes. There's Rick Yoon, who plays Zhao, and other notable mentions are Laris, uh, Lawrence Macquar. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Uh, as Mr. Kill. Remember Mr. Kill? The oh, yes. name to die for. Useless, <laughs> laser-killed henchman. And then um, Michael Gorovoy. He plays Vladimir Popov, who's like um, Gustav Gray's right-hand man who just sort of giggles and builds him hand weapons. Yeah, a strange, a strange bunch of people. And but to be honest, when you look through that list, they're actually all quite good. I mean, Toby Stevens probably would have been amazing given a good character to play. But no, he played it as um, Widow Twanky. I'm sure he was touted as being Bond at one point as well. Yeah, but that's the whole point of Graves, isn't it? Because Moon has based him his alter ego on Bond. 
That's the whole yeah, point. Yeah. It, yeah. On paper, that's the whole point. And it's quite a good concept yeah. on paper. He's nothing like Bond. He's ridiculous. <laughs> hey, he uses a Union Jack parachute. So Toby Stevens is the son of Sir Robert Stevens and Dame Maggie Smith. Oh, that's very good. Yeah. Um, and they like die another day. Colonel they Moon. It at Christmas Day. Colonel Moon uh, is apparently a nod to Colonel Sun, the um, continuation, continuation James Bond novel. That's so. an incredibly smart nod. Yes. Yeah. If it's true. <laughs> Uh, you're done with the villains. I really like Vlad, by the way. I think he's quite a funny villain. Yeah, yeah. He's he's he reminds me of um, quite a lot of those sort of characters from the late nineties. Yeah, the sort of weird Russian tech experts that you always have in films. Yeah, that are a bit weird and um, completely out of place. Completely out of place, but they've kind of got a comedy element to them. Um, yeah, he's probably he's probably the only one that I actually like out of all of that lot. Right, female stars. Uh, again, we'll cover these uh, characters in their own episodes later down the line, so I'll just gloss over these. Halle Berry as Jacinta Jinx Johnson. Obviously, this is her casting in the film is a sign of Bond stepping up a notch in, time, in terms of casting. Interestingly, in an interview that she did, she suggests that she her character was going to be a villain in the film. She said, I would have been happy to play the villain, but that was just one of the early, early drafts. She was still a strong and she was still an assassin. She just wasn't on the same side. So I was happy when they made the switch to make her on the same side of Bond, which I hadn't read before. She also had an eye injury on the film, a very minor one. And there are reports that she had to be saved from choking on a fig by Pierce Brosnan, who gave her the Heimlich maneuver. (laughs) You've touched upon Miranda Frost. She was played by Rosamund Pike in her first movie role. And that role was originally written as Gala Brand, another reference to Moonraker. So Gala Mm. Brand is the undercover agent, MI6 agent, who is in Drax's organization. So you can see the sort of um, seeds of that in what we had. She um, Uh, she was cast, was it five, six days before her first scene? And it was with Judi Dench? Yes. Because she she says on the commentary of the Die Another Day that she was terrified. She's like straight out of um, drama school and that's her first scene with Judi Dench. I think she's fantastic in the film. I've got a lot of time for her. She's obviously gone on to much bigger and better things since then. Other Bond girls, Rachel Grant as Peaceful Fountains of Desire. Couldn't read much about her, but she said that uh, there was a lot of com- there was some conflict between the director and the production and Pierce. Uh, there were a couple of little arguments that happened in front of me that were like something I'd never seen before. I was very uncomfortable. And I remember the makeup artist coming up to me and whispering, I'm really sorry about this. So that was quite an interesting insight for there mm. from Rachel Grant. And then finally, Madonna as Verity. Madonna, uh, we'll talk about later for doing the theme song, but she also did a cameo in the film playing uh, Frost's fencing instructor. So interestingly, one thing about Madonna acting in this film is that she insisted on having her own writer for the scene. So Robert Wade... <laughs> Uh, and Neil Purvis had to stand back and let Robert, uh, Madonna's uh, own writer come in to write Verity's lines. And apparently it was the guy who wrote her album notes that came in to do it. So that's quite embarrassing. Hang on. She's got about 10 lines. She's got about 10 lines. I know. Isn't it bad? And also in another interview, Rosamund Pike was asked about working with Madonna. And they said, um, and a telling quote from uh, from her was, we didn't know if she was going to turn up, but she was dead pre- they're professional and quite fun, really, and I guess quite nervous. So there was questions over whether she would even turn up to do the scene. Mm. So um, I read so. that she was down to deliver the Bond, James Bond line. Really? But, but they realised, they were like, mm, people probably want Pierce Brosnan to deliver that line. So they, Interesting. they took it off of her. 
How would she even say it? She it was, was going to strange in, thing. She's going to introduce him to Gustav. He's Bond, James Bond. She'd say Bond, James Bond. Uh, analyze yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, another big star returned, Brendan. Yes, Aston Martin is back. Oh yes, the BMW yes. is gone. So this is when Ford owned Aston Martin at the time, and they came to an agreement with Eon and MGM. And we covered this in the when we covered Aston Martin that no money was exchanged. It was done for the promotional opportunity. And so Ford provided seven V12 Vanquishes, Jaguar XK8s, and Ford Thunderbirds. And um, so Thunderbirds is for Jinx. That's Jinx's car. That is a weird car. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> they made special editions as well. And alongside other vehicles that are in the film, that are Jaguars, Land Rovers, that are all owned under the at the time under the Ford Motor Group. In addition to that, they were agreed to, be provi- to provide the advertising and support for the film all the way up to the release date. And so seven vanquishes, four of them were reconstructed to provide special effects so that I, I guess it's Peter Lamont would have been involved with sort of adapting them. Yeah, Chris Corbold as well, probably. Chris, um, Chris Corbold, yeah. And then three more were standard production ones uh, known, known as hero props, and they were for close-ups and interior shots. And so they made this announcement in August 2001. Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Rockley said, James Bond and Aston Martin have had a long and successful partnership in our films, and we are delighted to welcome the latest model the Aston Martin Vanquish to appear in the 20th film of the series. And the vice president of Ford, Wolfgang Reitzel, said, when people think of James Bond, the first car they think of is Aston Martin. For all of us that love the 007 films, it is great news that Bond is back driving an Aston Martin, this time our latest and most sophisticated model ever. We are also pleased to be working with MGM and Eon Productions and through the wider support of Ford, will be offering a full range of cars to the production. So they made a big press statement on this because it was a big deal. You know, Aston Martin was back and hadn't driven an Aston Martin since the 80s, had he? Dalton was... Uh, well, he'd driven the DB5, hadn't he, in GoldenEye? But not a new yeah, model. But not a new, a new model the last yeah. time he'd... Yeah. Uh, Keith Snellgrove, who was uh, in charge of like product placement at Eon, said the car is a big component of the James Bond brand. Everyone wants to know... What is James Bond's next car going to be? For Die Another Day, given it was our 40th anniversary year, we did make it a conscious effort to return to our roots with the Aston Martin heritage. And I'm glad they did. I really like the Vanquish. It's it's quite uh, it's um, soured somewhat by the invisible invisible uh, the yeah. upgrade. It's a, classic, it's a classic design, isn't it? It, it yeah. looks like an old Aston Martin. And that's it's exactly nice... what they're going for. Same colour yeah. as well. Yeah, it works. Yeah. yeah. Right, on to production. Okay, so on to production, and the first scene in the film is the quite impressive scene where we see three surfers surfing into North Korea, and that was filmed off Peihe, off the north coast of Maui, and it's three pro surfers called Laird Hamilton, Dave Kalama, and Derek Dorner, and they and they play that scene. But when when this scene actually when they actually land on the coast, I believe the coast scene is done in south of Spain and Newquay. Which is the bit where you know, Bond is actually on 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 the on the beach, which is in other scenes as well. And I I think that's quite a nice opening scene, isn't it? 
Yes. I mean, it's really annoying that they've got that scene and then later on they have Bond windsurfing in CGI. Well, does it work, does it? That's what makes what? it more problematic because they've showed real surfing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't do it twice, can you? No. And do it the next time. But They're 30-foot waves. This place in, in Hawaii, apparently it's called Jaws because of the size of the, mm. size of the waves there. It's a, quite an, an amazing thing. It's quite interesting yeah. that to see Bond surfing though and it made me think about like how many different skills James Bond ha- must have the bit that annoyed me about it and there's many things that have annoyed me about this film but the bit that annoys me that surfing and, and my knowledge of surfing isn't amazing I've done it, I've tried it a couple of times but when you go surfing you catch a wave and that's it you do the wave but they're like using it as a mode of transport and they just keep going over waves like they're on a boat I don't, that's, I don't think that's how surfing works. I think you, the, when the wave's gone, you stopped. You've got to go back and get another wave again. It's not a mode of transport. So that, that sort of annoys me from that scene. <laughs> but it does look nice, doesn't it? It's a good opening to a film. It's dark. It's interesting. You've not seen Bond do it before. I, there's no other surfing in Bond, is there? It must I be the think first time so. I've surfing. I don't, couldn't it's see Daniel surprising. Craig surfing. Yeah, well, I imagine around that time, I seem to remember when we were younger, surfing was pretty cool around the late 90s yeah it still Quite, is like, it's, it's it's still popular but it was like big in films there were a lot of films that point did break. surfing back in those days yeah point break in the 80s but then they had quite like a 90s resurgence didn't they with deep blue and all those sort of films where there's a lot of american kids surfing and fighting monsters and stuff like that well baywatch but yes so, yeah baywatch, baywatch. Yeah. yeah baywatch yeah yeah so yeah that's the opening scene not bad and so then we've got the whole pre-title sequence and just something to note here before we dive on a bit further is this film took six months to shoot you know it was massive production and at one point there were seven units filming at the same time which is just absolutely huge for this pre-title sequence which takes place in north korea vic armstrong did a lot of the work he's the second unit director does a lot of stunt work they found quite quickly that they didn't have enough um asian uh, stunt people so they had to bring in a lot of martial artist groups to audition to be stuntmen so that they they could look authentic for the scene and the first principal photography stuff that took place happened at pinewood but before all this was going on vic armstrong was an older shot uh, which doubled for north korea and to find the hovercrafts that they use in this for skimming over the um, mine fields, they went to a museum in on the place called Leon the Solent in Hampshire um, to choose the hovercrafts, which I thought was quite interesting. And you can still go there. That museum is still open to, to, to this day. But hovercrafts are an absolute nightmare to drive, apparently. Pierce Brosnan said it was like driving a bar of soap. And so Vic Armstrong had to set up a hovercraft training school for his drivers at Aldershot because they couldn't use hovercraft drivers from the museum because they weren't trained to hit their mark and all that sort of stuff. So so the, the sequence was shot at a place called Eel, Eelmore Tank Driving Range in Aldershot. And it's a military defence um, uh, place. And there was also sections filmed at Pinewood as well. But it was at this point that Piers Brosnan injured um, his knee. He was doing a 200-yard dash across the set and injured his knee and he had to be flown to America for an operation. Eon released a statement saying, since assuming the role of James Bond, Pierce Brosnan has always pursued the character with extreme physicality. And on Friday, Brosnan sustained a knee injury during an action sequence involving water. He immediately met with doctors who recommended he have surgery to prevent any further damage. 
And this is the first time in James Bond history that the Bond production has to shoot shut down filming because of an actor injuring themselves. So it's the first time and they go four weeks without shooting anything. But I imagine there was second unit stuff going on, but there was no first unit shooting going on because Brosnan was away. And it actually pushed the blade scene to the end of the shoot because of Brosnan's injury on his leg. Something else quite cool that they did uh, for the sequence, they did scale models. So you can see there's a like a quarter scale model and a half scale model which they use and they do that to make the explosions look bigger. But this was the biggest explosion in the film when when they blow up the um, blow up the uh, installation in North Korea. But yeah, they they filmed that, and then they obviously had the bridge sequence as well. It's a classic spy uh, trope, and that was filmed at a place called Hawley Woods in Farnborough in Hampshire. And then some other parts of it were filmed at a place called Chinar Cement Works in Oxfordshire. So it was pieced together in lots of different places. But I would say it's about the best, one of the best parts of the film, the opening sequence. Yeah, it would have been good if they continued it that style. Yeah. Where else did they film? Just touching back on the the beginning, you were right. It is Cornwall, that, op- that very opening scene of the beach. It's uh, Hollywell Bay, and it's near Newquay. So that, um, they were there in late February, and the the money that they paid to the the location, it was able to fund a lot of projects. Then also while they're in Cornwall in early March, they went to the Eden Project. So I don't know if. Have you either of you two been to the Eden Project? I have not no. been. No. I have indeed. Have you? Yeah. And, and impressive, it's all right? Yeah, yeah. Ma- massive domes. It's. I mean, it's not as amazing as you, it's. It's got like loads of nice plants and stuff from around the world in there. There's a zip line that goes across. It's an enjoyable place to go. It's quite expensive. Well, it was inspirational enough for the team to base Gustav Graves' uh, ice palace on. So, so they, did, did that inspire it? Yes, you, did they it's, just... it's behind it. So you've got the ice palace and then behind it's got those domes. Oh, yes. Yeah. And that's that's the inspiration. So they actually went to the Eden Project and filmed Jinx rap, rappling down the, yes. the yeah. dome. So yeah, that was their time in Cornwall. Well spent. And then we come to a big scene from the film, the Q scene, which opens with The Clash which we repeatedly mentioned throughout this uh It's so podcast. jarring, isn't it? Yeah, it just doesn't yeah. work. I read an interesting thing about it where um, it's an interesting way. It's like a, a bad callback to an old film because you know he goes to, uh, in Connery goes to Q's lair or Q's, Q's office um, in an earlier film. And he says then in, in that scene, it's like the beat, won't listen to the Beatles about earmuffs. And then in Die Another Day, they're basically playing an old rock song yeah yeah it just doesn't work it's just very straight it's, and there's no other that's not it's not like they're using songs throughout the film it's just one yes he's in london you don't have to yeah like give it a pop music background i can't think of another one where they've they've done that well beach boys yes <laughs> but Jar- that works with roger still jarring it's just stupid <laughs> can you imagine that in, in casino royale if craig walked in and there was some like i don't know <laughs> status quo playing or ABBA, double or nothing. Yeah, like um, Take a chance on me. Yeah. The uh, So yeah, the, it goes to um, the, the warehouse, which is, I've been there many a times. The door outside is actually um, just on the bridge, Westminster Bridge. If you go down towards like, it's like the McDonald's and the, Millenn- uh, the, the what's it called? The wheel? The Millennium Eye. Eye. The, the, the Millennium Eye. Eye. Millennium Eye. <laughs> <laughs> You've been watching too much Die Another Day. Um, 
so yeah, it's uh, it's it's a fictitious uh, tube station. It's not actually a tube station. It's a security office, and apparently the security guards that work in the office get really annoyed because people are always knocking on the door because um, huh. they're taking pictures and they're going, oh, let's have a look inside uh, Q's layer. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's just a security office. Obviously, it was filmed in Pinewood. That whole set. Uh, interestingly, the Hitchcock is is is, is got uh, in Frenzy. He does his cameo appearance in that film at that location. Ah, interesting. Yeah, interesting little um, little bit of information. Yeah, but other than that, yeah, all filmed in Pinewood, and they they just use loads of old stuff that's actually from the 007 like storage warehouse. You know, you've got the uh, Thunderball jetpack and Rosa Klebs shoes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so yeah, it's, it's just the whole. Sorry, the Acrostar plane. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. It's just a it's just a you know big series of callbacks. But um, yeah, I. I actually think um, Q's not too bad in that that scene in comparison to World's Not Enough. I disagree, but yeah, me too. Oh, there, yeah. There's one other mention there. Q says that um, he gives him a watch, doesn't he? Oh, he picks up the watch and he says, uh, "It's the twentieth one uh, you've been issued, I believe, or something like that." And that's a reference to Die Another Day being the twentieth Bond film. Yeah. Uh, something else interesting about that film is that because he's the first, it's the first time he's Q as he had not been queuing in the previous film, when Bond speaks to him first, he calls him Quartermaster. And it's only by the end of the scene that he accepts that he knows what he's doing and calls him Q. I quite like that scene. I think it's quite cool. Um, it's a memorable scene. I, I, it's it's probably one of the cooler locations that they've used in London, even though it's not a real one, but it's quite a quite, quite a nice little reference to London. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't Bond meet M in a tube station in Skyfall as well? Or yeah. am I... Yeah, mm-hmm. when he's yeah. brought back from service. So, mm. right on to, I think one of the film's other highlights, which is the frozen lake car chase. This scene was originally envisioned as an ice yacht race, and that was in the script for a very long time until it was eventually ditched. And the so they uh, they basically looked high and low for an ice lake to film on. Um, and that's quite more difficult than it sounds because most frozen lakes are covered in thick snow. And what they needed was something, a lake that froze froze solid and gave them enough ice to drive a car on. And it had to have a minimum of, I think they said 24 inches, but they could work up to a very minimum of like nine inches of frozen ice. And this was proving quite difficult. They settled on this place in Iceland called Hoffen, which is a, a glacier region. And actually, it's the same place that a view to a kill shot. It's iceberg scenes at the start of that film. But it was really touch and go. That ice looked like it might not freeze um, thick enough for them to, to use. And it was really looking like it wasn't going to happen. And they were really investigating going to Alaska to shoot the scene as well. They were looking at both options at the same time. But in the end, it looked like it was going to happen. Um, in order to do it, though, and we touched upon this in the Aston Martin episode, the cars had to be, the Aston Martin and the Jaguar had to be modded to um, four-wheel drive. So they had to basically take the engine out and put axles in and all sorts of stuff. So they basically had to be ripped apart and started from scratch. And that cost a million pounds a car, according to reports, to get those cars um, ice-worthy. So to get the lake to freeze and freeze properly, um, local um, production assistants or whatever they were, they used bulldozers to block the estuary that filled the lake so that the seawater wouldn't come in and melt it. And so that was one thing they did. But actually, then they were lucky to get a real cold snap of weather that meant that it froze the ice solid. And Armstrong, uh, Vic Armstrong, talked about what it was like uh, being on the lake. Because basically, they only have five people on the lake at the same time. 
in the same place and they all had to stand at certain distances apart so they wouldn't put too much weight on the ice but he said when it was when they had the car on there and they were filming it he said it was like standing on a trampoline bed the whole lake surface bounced up and down and it was nerve-wracking to think you were standing over a thousand foot of deep ice cold water yep. and as you can imagine if you fell into the water you would have not long to get out of there no. so the effort yeah put it into this film but it really i think for this scene it really helps because it looks fantastic but i would also say that you could probably could have done it on a <laughs> on a green screen it would have looked it CGI's everything else yeah I don't think that's Vic Armstrong but anyway look so one thing that they had to do because of the ice and the risk of falling into the water was that they had to the, the Aston Martin has to drive with the windows open because if the car went into the water it, they wouldn't have to open the windows to get out the Jaguar was fine because it was soft top and something else that neither driver did on the Jaguar or the Aston Martin was they didn't wear seatbelts either because, again, it was something else that they would have to think about before they could get out of the car. Um, uh, they also shot on that glacier. They also shot the scene where Bond is in the rocket car. And again, that was something that they had left over from the ice yachting scene. So they basically took the, the, the car chase, the, sorry, the, the yachting scene and split it into the, the car chase. And then later on, the rocket sled thing where it went to the edge of the cliff and all that. That was originally going to be yachts, but um, that didn't happen. But that scene ends with the cars in the ice palace, which again is quite a quite an amazing scene, I think. Yeah, so that ice palace, it's um it was it was built at Pinewood and it took six months to construct that. That's remarkable. And to get that look of pure ice, they had to get special plastic resins shipped over. So Peter Lamont sourced it and they got this uh, sent over and it needs to be, they need to look like ice. It needs to be strong enough because if you remember the end scene, they're, they're doing that, um, the car chase. It needs to be strong enough to, to be able to hold a high speed car chase as well. And, and even though a quarter of the movie is set there, it's set at the, the ice palace in Iceland. Brosnan didn't actually go to Iceland. Something that on the commentary, he... He's a bit frustrated about. He's looking forward to going to Iceland, and then it's like, no, you're not going. It's it's at Pinewood, and then we're doing pickup shots, and uh, we're doing it in a car park, and it was cardboard cutouts that were standing in for glaciers. So, um, <laughs> amazing, quite quite incredible to think that. I didn't even CGI that. I just went with cardboard instead. Yeah, so Robert Wade says, we were writing Die Another Day and Barbara Broccoli mentioned she had read about an ice palace located somewhere in Sweden. So, you, as you mentioned earlier, and she said it'd be a great place for a villain. And they liked it and they went with that. So that's why they did that. Um, and Peter Lamont says, I went and stayed in the real place in Sweden. They bring a new architect every summer and build it when the weather gets cold. Everything is done in ice. And that was the basis for the design of the ice palace, which we built at Pinewood Studios. I feel it's slightly underused. Don't know what you two think. Really? Yeah. If you think yeah, about I, minutes on screen. Yeah, I also think they focus too much on there's too many close ups in that in the ice palaces. Yeah. You don't really see it a lot. They're not it's not like you all the scenes are done with all this backdrop and everything. It's like they're in little rooms all the time. Mm. Because dare I say it, it's something worthy of Ken Adam. Yeah. Mm. It's a very it's Ken Adam y type. Yeah, especially that wide shot, you know, and you can see it all. 
I like it at the yeah. end. I like the way that the cars are brought into it. I think they, I, I don't know where I read this quote was that they just had made this amazing set and they thought we need to bring the cars in here because that will just give it an extra dimension. And I think that's it, a great It would have been cooler if, you know how like the old Blofeld sets are massive expansive sets and it's got, it's like his base. People are working in there and it's, this is like a club. They've turned it into like a nightclub. <laughs> It's just, yeah. You've seen nightclubs like that before. It's not yeah. an amazing thing, is it? Yeah. Imagine if Blofeld had a nightclub in his volcano. It would have been ridiculous. Charles, Charles Gray, yes. <laughs> oh, oh. Telly he's Savalas. A he's a raver. Yes. I, I also think it's let down. You, If you remember the first shot you see of the interior of the Ice Palace, it's that weird, sweeping, yes. fast-paced shot. Oh, so you don't really yeah. get to enjoy it. No. Because it's just, it's no. sort of following but it's, it's not something like nobody has seen the interior of a volcano base before that's why it's so amazing people have seen ice-based clubs and stuff like that before it's not that impressive it's impressive from the outside but the inside it's just a room isn't it it's made like a bit like ice something i think that the film lacks there is also it doesn't never never seems cold which um i think no. is uh yeah is problematic cold yeah um hoth because you've seen Blade Runner, right? There's that scene where he goes into the the, the robot maker's lair, uh, not lair, but his lab, with the eyeballs. And apparently, they they had to they built a set inside a fridge. That's how they made it look cold. And that's kind of what this set needed, I think. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, it doesn't or, look real, does it? No, you don't feel it. No, because the the actors aren't cold. Yeah, no, you, just, no. you can see they're not cold, can't you? Yeah, yeah. But there we have it. Uh, so another location which has it's, it's it's been used a lot in over 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 the last uh, century in various films and things the reform club which was obviously the main part of the film where you we see the blades the blades club where they have the fencing fight which i think is a very good scene um blades the start of it the concept is good and i don't think there's ever been a good i imagine he's sword fights with people in an earlier film but he's never done a fencing scene which seems odd for bond you'd think he's You'd mm. think he was a good fencer, and it seems like a logical thing for him to do. So that was so the Blades Club was all set in the Reform Club, but also the Reform Club was used for some other scenes as well. It was used for the MA6 headquarters at a certain point. It was used for a bit of filming in Buckingham Palace, Green Park, and Westminster. I can't even remember what all of those scenes are, but apparently it was used for all of them. It is, it's, it's used for loads of films. Tenet, Sherlock Holmes, Quantum of Solace uses it for the Foreign Office scene in, in it. Paddington. Miss Potter, Around the World in 80 Days, the 1956 version, The Avengers in 1998. So it's a pretty um, popular place to film because it's just got that enormous, expansive, old, classic British style to it. It looks absolutely fantastic. Very Fleming-esque, isn't um, it? Yeah, it's a beautiful looking scene. I mean, it's just a pity it's soured by the likes of Madonna turning up in it. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely one of the most attractive looking scenes. And it's also a real scene. There's no CGI in it. There's no nonsense going on. It's just a like a really good stunt fight sequence. In a, it does get a bit ridiculous after a bit. It probably needs to stop after about forty five seconds. But yeah, so uh, yeah, the the Reform Club. Just a few. It's um, uh, it's still going. So there's loads of really high profile members that that frequent it. Uh, David Attenborough, Winston Churchill frequented it. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, Camilla Parker Bowles, Martin Sorrell from um, the big uh, advertising man, and H.G. Wells, all members of the Reform Club. So quite a big deal in in the world of money and film. <laughs> but I, I think uh, for me, I think this is where the film peaks, and it's it's from that point where he invites him to Iceland 
that the film really takes a nosedive. I think up to this point, I think it's got good momentum. But um... I, I do have a problem with the concept is very good. I like the fact that Bond is fighting his and fighting Mano El Mano with a couple of swords with a, a, his Bond sort of nemesis who's meant to have the same skills and stuff as him. But I do think it gets a bit daft towards the end of the fight. And I don't particularly like Brosnan too much in it as well. He doesn't seem like he's particularly cool in it. He seems like a bit of an older gent who's not really in control of the scene. But but visually, I think it's very good. And I think the concept is good as well. It ends think- on a weird line, doesn't it? That that um, it needed redecorating anyway. The security guard. But yeah. what what's that line for? I don't know. This meant you could say that about two hundred and fifty lines from this film. The guy who gives him the note is a Olympian, isn't he? He's uh, it's a cameo. The guy with the dreadlocks. Oh, I don't know. I think his name's oh, Oliver Skeet. So he had been uh, an Olymp- a British Olympian. I think maybe horse riding. Maybe right, anyway. Okay. Something it's, fun def- of- it's definitely the scene where Toby Stevens. This is where he starts hamming up. This is where it twists. It like it suddenly flicks a switch and he's he's hamming up to the eleventh um, degree. He's um, really going for it. And then it goes to the ice palace and he's full full on ham. Yeah. Did you have something, Brendan, about the Buckingham Palace stuff? Did you read about? It was that? just uh, I did. I watched it. It's on the DVD extras. They they did the. They had like a small window on a, on a morning to do that parachute jump where Graves parachutes into Buckingham Palace. And so they'd cleared like the airspace across London and they'd closed off, you know, the front of Buckingham Palace. The mile, yeah. Um, yeah, and they did it really early in the morning as well because they wanted to avoid all the crowds. And so they had, I think they had two, they had two goes at it. So they're right. two guys in the in the uh, in the plane dressed as graves, but I think they got it in one. And the fact they did it for real anyway, it's it's incredible, you know. And yeah. they didn't have to really. Well, it's when you said it, I thought I was like, I'm sure they would have just composited it, and but yeah, no, no, but no they, they, did, it they did it for real. Yeah, they uh, saved a uh, three hundred thousand pounds or something by uh, doing a bit of CGI on that. Yeah. yeah it, interestingly, took, taking it back to Blades, uh, Pierce Brosnan and Toby Stevens did most of that sword fighting themselves uh, on the DVD extras. You you can see them doing all their training. But Toby Stevens, he trained for months, and because it got pushed back to the end of shooting, Brosnan couldn't do as much training for it as Toby Stevens did. But Toby Stevens came to it thinking he's going to be absolutely brilliant at this. But Brosnan was just like great at it anyway. So, um, uh, oh, was it? yeah, he was naturally great, but they were trained by this guy called Bob Anderson, who's like this world renowned Olympic fencer. Uh, other films that he'd done include Highlander, Princess Bride, anything with fencing, basically uh, Lord of the Rings. And also really he, was, hard. he was the stunt double for Darth Vader in Empire Strikes Back. And I, I did a course in uh, fencing. The Jedi. Did you? Yeah. It's so hard. It's, The adrenaline is just ridiculous. Did you have trouble keeping your tip up? I never have trouble keeping my tip up. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what he says? Something like that. It's probably worse than that, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so production moved to Spain on location. This had to double for Cuba because basically US law prohibits films from shooting in cuba i didn't know that but um apparently at this time you can't sh- you couldn't shoot a film in in cuba so this place called la saleta doubled for havana and the isla los organos isla los organos is a fictional place that's where the um the treatment center isn't it for the yeah. gene therapy stuff so they went to this place cadiz uh and la saleta 
And this is obviously where they filmed Jinx's entrance, this famous entrance by Halle Berry into the film, which was a huge homage to Ursula Andress in Doctor No. And in the original script, according to Purvis and Wade, this is a quote from them, we originally had her coming out of the sea naked, which is very similar to how Honey Rider comes out of the sea in the book Doctor No. But Lee Tamahori wanted to put a bikini on her. So from a writing standpoint, the scene's been ruined. So in the book, (laughs) Honey Rider... Stewart in um, Extras. Yes. Yeah, and all the clothes fall off. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there we go. But so Lindy Hemming, the costume designer, said we didn't want a white bikini like the one Ursula Andress wore. So we went to La Perla and they made this, uh, asked them to make one specially for her. So they had this custom orange bikini with the white belt, which was fitted exactly to sit on, on, on her hips. Talking about the scene, Halle Berry said, it was a little daunting doing that scene because Andres did it so well originally. And there's a, that's a piece of cinema that goes down in movie history as one of those beloved scenes. I was scared of it at first because I didn't want to be compared to someone else in that way. But I finally just released that angst about it and just decided to do it my way, put the knife on and do the best I can. And actually, when you watch the scene being filmed, it looks it was much colder and windier than it actually looked. And you can see Halle Berry's wrapped up in thick towels. and She's got like um, hot water bottles stuffed down her towels just to keep her warm. And in fact, the shooting in Cadiz, where they were shooting outside the clinic, um, the action sequence there, they almost had to cancel it. They basically did a week without shooting because the weather was so bad that they were going to have to leave Cadiz. But eventually the the weather took a turn for the better and they, they, they stayed there. But later talking about that scene, Ursula Andress was asked about it and she said, I did think that Halle was lovely in Die Another Day. Very curvy. Just one more thing before we move on to the infamous scene. There was one more film that was filmed for Die Another Day and it was the beach house where Bond and Jinx get together at the end with the diamonds. And this was filmed uh, in Penbryn, which is between Aberystwyth and Cardigan in Wales. Mm. And the building that they shot took a team eight days to construct and it's on screen for seconds and Halle Berry and Pierce Brosnan never never visited the location but just thought it was fun James Bond in Wales with a helicopter yes well yeah, something those, else about those that cars scene, the cars sticking out yeah the field I I always think about that scene and you see the cars standing up in like the, they're supposed to be like paddy fields I guess yeah but any any other time a car falls off a cliff a bridge, it explodes in James Bond. In Die Another Day, they land and they stand up perfectly in the water. <laughs> right next to each other as well. Right next to each other, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so shall we? Shall we yes. talk yes, about let's that? let's do it. Finally. <laughs> let's ride that wave. Uh, so, if you recall, Graves creates a tsunami by using Icarus to melt the ice. And so the scene where Bond rides that wave... You might be shocked to know it was shot on green screen. What are you talking? Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> all the waves and all the uh, glaciers, they were, yeah, they were digitally produced, would you believe? But this is what annoyed me about this. So th- the effects company that, that created this, they spent so much time and effort because they'd not realised how, like, it was, this is pretty advanced. If you think 2002, yeah, CGI is available, but it's nowhere near like it is now. And so they'd spent so, such a long time getting ice and water to try and to make it look as realistic as possible. They didn't have enough time to render Bond <laughs> onto it. Which is why 
if you watch it, he, he it just doesn't fit at all. You can see that he's not there because they had they they ran out of time. And obviously, this this is what's got the film mocked widely. Most people will reference this as a, as a, a particular low point. The visual uh, visual effects supervisor Mara Bryan said. It's a very short sequence, but probably the most demanding one in the film. We shot Pierce against blue screen and everything else was entirely CG. Ice has a translucency and a transparency that we can't actually give to a CG object. So we had to simulate it with lighting and shaders. When Lee Tamahori asked me whether I could do it, I just looked at him and said, uh, yeah. And then I went to Cinesite and said, I've just said yes, so we've got to do this. So I'd have just stuck a model on a board <laughs> and thrown it down. And you have to say it abs- it looks absolutely it looked awful at the time and now what 19 years later it it looks atrocious. It looks really out of the pl- out of place. And if you if you yeah. compare it to other films at the time it still looks awful. That whole sequence from the rocket rocket car to that on the yeah. edge of the cliff and then falling down and then into yeah. the water it's it's just it, all it, really bad and it just culminates if yeah. you went back and you were editing that film and you had you saw that scene you could replace that with some it doesn't need it you could replace it yeah. with something else he could just be on a normal sea and in a big wave i mean they'd already been out there to do those big waves you could just do it again and it would look fine mm-hmm. it's, it's, there's a lot of stuff in this this film where you look back and you go delete it it would be better if you just deleted that scene uh, well I, I read something interesting about the um uh, the company that that did it um apparently they don't reference it on any of their sort of all the work that they've done yeah. they've got uh, every other film but they never, they never mentioned die another day i'm not surprised this is from vic armstrong's book he says bond races this thing across the lake being chased by a giant laser blast slicing through ice and ends up hanging over the precipice of a glacier cue one of the worst sequences in bond history when he paraglides on a giant wave that was absolute garbage appalling cgi nonsense i think if you lose the trust of the audience then you're screwed i'm a great believer in cgi i think there's a place for it in the stunt business but used correctly everyone keeps saying to me why did you have to do that bit with the wave and i say it was nothing to do with me it was the director's choice and I think that's the thing, isn't it? You lose the trust of the audience when you do that. And yeah. it's it patently yeah. not real. And I think that's Bond, something Bond films have always strived to do, is, is try to do it as real as possible. And that's something that, you know, someone like Christopher Nolan always does as well. And it's using CGI yeah. to supplement what you already have rather than using CGI to be the effect. Um, yeah, I mean, if you look at... We've done Casino Royale and the way they use CGI in that where it's to just enhance the realism and not make it jump out as not being real. The yeah. thing is, it doesn't match up because in this, they've done that ice chase, the car chase on the ice for real. So they've done that. Yeah. At the beginning, they've done the actual surfing. They've built this massive ice palace at Pinewood. So to throw that in, you know, if you had more CGI like that throughout the film, it's probably more, you'd forgive it a bit more. You go, yeah, it's all just nonsense. But this stands out particularly bad, I think. Okay, so on to post-production, and we'll start at the beginning with the title sequence. This is a Daniel Kleiman special, but as is with the rest of the film, there's quite a lot of uh, sort of CGI elements to it. And that starts at the start of the sequence with the gun barrel scene, 
where for the <laughs> first time in a Bond gun barrel scene, we see an actual bullet fire through the, the gun barrel, which I don't know what your views are on that, but it's a little bit weird. Doesn't it's quite horrible. Work. Well, if you think about it, that means he's shot a, a bullet down the barrel <laughs> of the gun that's aiming at yeah. him. Yeah, he's good. Yeah. He's really good. Yeah. <laughs> like Robin Hood. Yeah, he's yeah. a fantastic shot. So yeah, the um, and a, another thing about the scene is so you kind of is there's a lot of motifs that play out throughout the whole of the the title sequence. Obviously, it's got the music from uh, Madonna on it, which we'll talk about in a bit. He's in he's in this prisoner of war camp. He's in a fourteen month incarceration in this in this camp, and the opening sequence sort of plays that out. It sort of uses the the sequence to show what's happening to him during that period, like the the, the torture and this sort of passing of time which has never been done before nobody's used the title sequence to actually be part of the film so there's various scenes in the like shots across the screen as you kind of see him getting tortured there's also mixtures of sort of cgi scorpions women overlaying these these scenes of him getting tortured and it's quite dark as well it's normally the the sort of sequence isn't that it isn't that dark the live and let die one is memorably also quite a dark title sequence but it's it works from the point of view that it's trying to trying to set a tone, isn't it? Really, for the film and well, the start of the film at least, where he's in this in this camp and uh, it's not going so well. It's not like the, a normal teaser at the start where things are all going nicely and Bond's looking cool. So yeah, there's there's various other bits of the scene as there's ice CGI um, designs playing across the title sequence and there's lightning sparks which I don't think they needed to put in really because that's the strangest part of the film that I can think of. But yeah, so the, and, and then you, by the time you get to the end of the title sequence, you've just basically seen the journey of him getting tortured over the course of that 14 months and um, the story continues. Yeah, it's a real fire and ice um, motif, isn't there? Uh, it's interesting they try to do something different with those titles. I guess they do a little bit of it in Skyfall, don't they? Telling the story of what happens next because it's got Bond falling off mm. the bridge, doesn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't guess think I don't think it's particularly bad, apart from the song. Yeah. So this is where it becomes um, a little bit jarring. Is the song that uh, goes over it, which is "Die Another Day" by Madonna. So before we get to Madonna, so it turns out that David Arnold actually started to write a song for the film called "I Will Return," and he wrote a verse and a bridge for it. Didn't finish the song because he knew they were already talking with Madonna, and he'd obviously had his fingers burned with. Tomorrow Never Dies with the song he'd written and then they'd got Cheryl Crow in. But he did reuse the melody that he wrote for I Will Return as the theme for Peaceful Fountains of Desire. And he also later used the lyrics in a Shirley Bassey song, No Good About Goodbye. So some of his work did Mm. live on. So after The World Is Not Enough had been performed by Garbage, it was a successful song but wasn't a big hit commercially. So obviously with it being 40th anniversary, they were looking for someone huge to do uh, the song and they landed on Madonna for the 40th anniversary film. And, you know, at the time she was massive. She'd had like Ray of Light had been a big hit. She'd basically really hit like a second wind in her career. And they, MGM did a deal with Madonna for the song and the cameo and the promotion uh, for a million dollars. So they paid her a million dollars for for the whole package. And Anita Kamrata, the executive vice president of MGM Music, explained uh, in 2002, with every other artist, you're taking a chance. But with Madonna, she has an extraordinary track record. She has written songs for films before and they were always perfect. So I don't know if you remember, but she'd had a hit with an Austin Powers song for an Austin Powers film. Beautiful Stranger. Beautiful Stranger, yeah. yes. 
So she was recruited and she decided that she would work on it with Merways, the collaborator that she'd been working with on her album's music and also the one that she was currently in production on, American Life. So they went to the demos that they'd been working on for the American Life album and found a track that they thought would work for the film. So first of all, red flag. She's not writing a song for the film. She's taking a song that she's already written and putting it in. She's not adapting to the style of James Bond. She's choosing something for herself. So they chose this song and they sent the demo to Barbara and Michael and they liked it, but they said that, you know, the song would have to undergo some changes. So they brought in a composer called Michel Colombier and he did the strings for the song to make it more Bond-esque. And I think the strings are quite good on it. That makes it very Bond or almost Bond-esque. So talking about the writing process for the song, Madonna said, I hemmed and hawed about it for a while because just for that reason, though, everybody wants to do a theme song of a James Bond movie. And I, I never like to do what everybody else likes to do. It's just some perverse thing in me. But then I thought about it and I said, you know what? James Bond needs to get he needs to get techno. So so, yeah, just what James Bond needed was techno. So she told an interviewer from Genre magazine that the lyrics were about destroying your ego and it's the juxtaposing the metaphor of the fight against bad and good and it's set inside the whole universe of Bond. So the stuff about Sigmund Freud, it's about destroying the ego and obviously that's a Sigmund Freud idea. So that's where the idea comes from. A very, very literal use of it. So, um, but people say, like, reviews at the time said that was the best lyric on the whole album, which I thought was very strange because she puts the song on the album at a later date anyway. So the song actually leaked onto the internet in early October 2002 prior to the film's, uh, the song's official release. And so after being leaked, it ended up being played on the radio and what have you. Talking about the song uh, in his book, Madonna, The Complete Guide to Her Music, the author Ricky Rooksby described the film, the song as melodically uninteresting and harmonically repetitious. The song itself was nominated for the Golden Raspberry Award for the Worst Original Song of 2002. And Madonna herself actually won the award for the Worst Supporting Actress for her cameo in the film. But it was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Original Song at the um, at the Golden Globes. And it lost to U2 song The Hands That Built America, which they wrote for Gangs of New York. Do you remember the video for this song, the music video for this song? No, yet isn't she being tortured? She's being tortured, yeah. And I think that maybe there's two versions of her. Um, so it was, it, you know, produced independent of the film. There's no footage from the James Bond film, but it's very sort of Bond inspired in a way. Fun fact for you, it's the third most expensive music video of all time. <laughs> it costs $6 million. If you were to name like some of the most famous expensive music videos, this wouldn't come up, I'm sure. The most expensive music video of all time is Scream by Michael Jack- Michael and Janet Jackson. And the second That's is... That's money wo- well spent. Money well spent. And the second is Work Bitch by Britney Spears. Again, money well no spent. No teenage dirtbag. No, no. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that was the music uh, video for it. Uh, it was moderately successful. It was the highest charting James Bond song in the US since uh, A View to a Kill, which had reached number one. Uh, and in the United Kingdom, it entered the UK singles chart at number three and was kept from the top spot by, fun fact for you, DJ Sammy's remix of Brian Adams' Heaven. 
Well, as as it should be. That's and, exactly what I've expected. And at number two, Dilemma by Nelly and Kelly Rowland. Very good. That famous I, I, song. I where... don't remember like when that was out. We were prime sort of going out age. I don't ever remember ever hearing that in a bar or a club. It was on the radio. Can you imagine dancing to that? No, I remember doing the robot. It was. It was on the. (laughs) And and there's a dance version that's played at the end of the film as well, isn't there? Oh, it's awful. Yeah, Yeah. terrible. And if you look at the single version of it, there's about four or five different remixes of it. Um, And I really haven't mustered the energy to listen to any of them yet. Um, No, but you know. For some fans, it's one of the best Bond songs, especially for younger generations. I think there was a poll which put it one of the most popular James Bond songs Techno for fans. a younger audience. Um, but for, I think for longer term fans, I, I think it doesn't really rate very highly um, for Bond songs. No. It's just not very Bond, is it? No, that's the issue. But on a lighter note, David Arnold's score. Yeah, David Arnold's back to, to score to another day. When, when, another Another sort of ray of sunshine i guess he used a couple of tracks that he'd created for the previous film the world is not enough one that he'd used for reynard but is is used in a track called antonov in this recording and that's played on piano and then they use another one which is he describes as bond's romance theme and that's where he uses that at the end in a track called going down together yeah so there was also a expanded edition which was released in November 2017, um, which has unreleased tracks, two discs. It's got probably about 30 tracks on it. it. It's quite substantial. At the time, the reviews pretty mixed. I read one that said that it was it, David Arnold had lost his inspiration. But he says, I think with Dark Another Day, someone said some of the music was a bit over the top. And I was thinking... Would that be for the scene where the guy who was a DNA-changed villain who became Korean? No, he became Western. He was Korean. Tried to kill James Bond with a space laser operated by a remote-controlled armed device while they were escaping from a melting ice palace? That film had levels of extremity of all sorts of things in it, and the music has to react to what we're seeing. I mean, he could he could hardly, hardly do a, a soundtrack such as the one he did with Casino Royale. It just wouldn't fit. So he's right. You know, he's got to match what's seen on screen, otherwise it's jarring. And I think he... I don't think it is too over the top. I think he managed to do it in the classiest possible way he could. He can do it. If you listen to it isolated away from the movie, it's fine. There's the, I really like the Cuba track. That's actually a really good track. What's it called? In, in Havana? Something? Yeah, possibly. I really like um, that one of the op- in one of the opening scenes, he uses cues from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Um, yeah, there are as, twinklings all the way through. Yeah, mixed classic. into it. Yeah, something I think he he probably could have used more of. You know, a bit being the anniversary film, he could, probably could have done more of that. Yeah, Honor Majesty's is is referenced. Um, there's a few bars of Doctor No, is it? Doctor Doctor No, yeah. So yeah, he's using using that inspiration, but maybe he could have doubled down. Um, I'm wondering if um, you know there's those like really horrible scenes in the in the nightclub, the ice nightclub, where it just is like really fast, then slow, then fast, yeah. then slow. If he if that his music was used before they edited that, or he was trying to make music to fit that the way that well, they'd edited it. Well, 
I think we covered it in the David Arnold episode. He usually composes it to what he's seeing. Mm. He usually gets sent an edit. It, that's what it looks like. Yeah. Which looks almost impossible. But yeah, I, 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 I think it's fine. I think it's quite a good soundtrack, really, on the whole. There was mm. the um, David, Ar- David Arnold versus Paul Oakenfold James Bond theme remix that came out around that time as well. Is that that's that's track one? It's track one on the uh, soundtrack. Yeah, is that used in the film? I don't think it is. Is it? No, no. no. But yeah, interesting choice. Okay, so on to posters. Uh, do you all remember the posters from the film? I remember yeah, that the, they both got a gun. Yeah, they both got a gun. So and Bond. So uh, it was the same agency, design agency that did Goldeneye. Uh, a company called InSync Plus, and um, they the design that they worked on. The first poster that came out was the gun resting on a piece of ice. I love melting. that poster. Yeah, and they, that was. I don't know if it was based on it, but it's it's said to be sort of evoking the design of John Gardner's novel Icebreaker, which had a very similar motif at the front with a gun on on ice, which they probably did use because they'd obviously done their research on that. Uh, and apparently the gun on it is a Beretta 84FS, which isn't Bond's gun. It's Jinx's gun, which is interesting, which I didn't know. Uh, so that was the first sort of teaser one that came out long before the film was released. Then they had the main poster that came out, which was Brosnan and Jinx side by side, both holding guns, randomly posting them at the bottom corner of the poster. And that's it, really. There's not a lot more to the design of that. You've just got a sort of kind of a blue background. And that's quite a big thing for Bond because that's the first time he's shared the main poster with anyone else. Sometimes there are other people in, but normally they're smaller. This is where he's sharing the billing, basically, with with Jinx or Halle Berry. Um, So it's quite a big deal. It's a fairly standard poster. I actually think it's a very early 2000 poster. It looks like a Nicolas Cage. You know, in the early 2000s, it's always somebody pointing a gun at something. Yeah, and the background of the poster is like can you remember that sort of design that they use Nicholas Cage posters use it all the time where it's like it's looking fast like the background <laughs> is just made to look like they're moving fast so it's just them two with like this fast moving design in the background um, it's I think I think the the, the, the icebreaker picture is quite nice but I think that it's a bit of a lazy one though the Jinx and Brosnan poster. And then they started releasing the sort of cinema posters. So, you know, the where you get multiple designs of, this, of the same poster that go all around the cinema. So you've got all the different characters. They were pretty simple. It was just all of the main characters with a blue background on, uh, which you'd just see plastered across all of the cinemas and stuff like that. Then they did the international marketing. So for the international marketing, they used a mixture of that. So they had uh, Brosnan and Halle Berry shooting a gun randomly at the corner of the poster and then in the background lots of ice with the faces of the other characters in so not like world beating posters but they're not bad they're fairly minimal in a lot of ways and they're quite colorful as well they're like the blues are really bright so it's quite noticeable Uh, one thing i did find that was quite interesting was um, when they did the international posters they didn't really change a lot um, and the, the person in charge of sort of global design for the posters kind of kept them the same but in certain countries, they'd like loosen Brosnan's tie or they'd take off his tie. And that was the only thing they changed on the posters. <laughs> they bother with anything else. It sat in the meeting room where somebody goes, it's fine, but can you loosen that tie a little bit? Yeah, that's perfect that we're done. But yeah, that's it for posters really. It's, um, yeah, all right. Not the best, not the worst. Just kind of do the job, I think. There's some cool Japanese variant posters, I think, where like 
they're sort of a bit more um, graphic, yeah. like red they're, and they're, blue. They're always better. Right. Every time I research these posters, I go through all of the UK America ones and think, eh, all right. And then I see a Japanese one or like a, a, a European one, and they're so much better. I wonder but why yeah, that is. It, I wonder if anyone who's listening, who's a movie poster expert, can tell us why the Japanese ones are so often diff- very different and better. Well, yeah, it's the same for like Japanese posters. They're not. They don't seem to have like a theme in the way that in the UK or in America you'd have like an action poster, or like a template, a romantic comedy. Yeah, They're yeah, like all a the same. It's like yeah. Godzilla. Right. Let's look at how the film when it was released. So the premiere of the film. So Royal Albert Hall was transformed into an ice palace for the world premiere on 18th of November 2002. Um, I don't know if you've seen pictures of it or remember it, but they put like these giant icicles hanging down from the roof and bathed it in white light and blue light to make it look uh, like an ice palace. And it was chosen as the Royal Film Performance, which is an annual event uh, in aid of the film and television charity. So it's obviously a big, a big event for the 40th anniversary and is attended by, and it was attended by members of the Royal, British Royal family, including Her Royal Majesty the Queen. Uh, and this was her first James Bond premiere since You Only Live Twice, which is a big deal. And it was the Duke of Edinburgh was there as well in his first Bond premiere since Moonraker. So a big deal. Can you imagine um, um, the Queen saying, look, I'm, I didn't like You Only Live Twice. It was too ridiculous. And they're saying to her, look, they're not like that anymore. That was just like the most ridiculous Bond film. They've, they've really calmed down after that. Okay, I'll go. I'm going to come out and go to that. Did, did she go to see Oriel? I'm assuming not. Uh, yeah, who knows? I mean, um, it could be could be the same for the Duke of Edinburgh, though. He's just seen Moonraker. They're not like that anymore. Don't worry. They're nothing to do with... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So um, guests, obviously, you know, uh, Pierce Brosnan was there with Halle Berry uh, and, their, and their partners. But um, other people at the premiere included George Lazenby, Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton, Ooh. which is quite interesting uh, because George Lazenby, I think I, I might be wrong, but this is the first time he'd been invited back to the Bond mm. Eon fold since On a Majesty's Secret Service in 1969, and he left the franchise uh, uh, in, in, you know, unhappy circumstances, let's say. Other people there include um, other Bond alumni, including Lois Childs, Shirley Eaton, Mariam Diabo, Maud Adams. Other actors from the film included Die Another Day's um, Toby Stevens, Rosamund Pike and Rick Yoon, and John Cleese, Judi Dench, Samantha Bond. And then uh, other people from the Bond films who I thought were quite interesting that were there. Richard Keel, uh, obviously played George. Bert Kwok, who had many roles in different James Bond films. And VJ Armitrage, who I found while trawling the photo gallery for this, who I thought was quite interesting. The guy from Octopussy. So that was quite nice. Uh, Shirley Bassey, Monty Norman and John Barry were also there, as was Madonna, who was there with Guy Ritchie. So in addition to the premiere at the Albert Hall, there was a, uh, a preview screening that happened at uh, Empire Cinema in Leicester Square. And there were also regional charity premieres uh, later in that week. And interestingly, Die Another Day had regional premieres at the Odeon in Newcastle and Birmingham and also at the Warner Village in Plymouth. I don't know if you remember this, but there was a time where films would often get regional premieres. But uh, yeah, that was... That was part of it. But yeah, it was a huge premiere uh, for the 40th anniversary. And obviously we'll have another one at the Royal Albert Hall for No Time to Die. Um, 
And not only was there a huge premiere, there was general anniversary celebrations throughout that whole year of 2002, celebrating the 40th anniversary. So I'm just going to reel off a few of the things that were, were put out. Uh, I can see that Wheatley's going to frantically going to be on eBay trying to buy all of this stuff now. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Maybe for your you, birthday. You, you'll be in the market for a Barbie and Ken, won't you? Because that's what got released. I've already Commem- looked for them. A commemorative 007 doll, Barbie <laughs> and Ken. Nightfire was released on PlayStation 2. The James Bond Legacy was released, a book that we have referenced. Uh, it's by John Cork and Bruce Skivelly. Massive book. Je- really massive. Like, you, you mean you physically? Fl- physically yeah. massive. You have it's to put tome, it on the floor to read it. Yeah. James Bond Spy Files did... Do you, either of you collect this? That started in January 2002. Yeah, I remember, I remember that. I think I got about yeah. three of them and gave up. Yeah, I got the metal tin and a couple of yeah. cars. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. Corgi released 20 cars, special miniature cars, one for each film. Playing cards were released by Carter Mundy. There were toys specially designed uh, featuring 12 action figures of Bond actors from, the, from all the films. Swatch uh, had a massive campaign with 20 individual uniquely designed wristwatches. I bought one and I gave it to Butler. Yep, still got it. A while it. ago. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I got the Baron Sabody one. Ah, nice. It's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> so I gave it to Butler. Um, and Amiga actually did a, a special watch as well, a limited edition version, and that was £1,200 it retailed for. Did you not? You didn't give him that one? No, he's not got that one. Although the Swatch was still quite pricey. Most magazines had a special feature, special cover. Um, you just do a Google image search and it's just absolutely rife. All the DVDs were reissued, special edition with extra features. Mariam Darbo premiered her documentary Bond Girls Are Forever. Bloomingdale's did a, a special 007 boutique inside the store, but Harrods did what went on even better and they did a massive 20 window display in Knightsbridge uh, which was dedicated to all the individual Bond films um, wow. and, it, and and selling merchandise from each window around wow. which yeah. uh, with original props and costumes which were very pricey there was a special uh, museum for displaying the boats from the series different boats, the Science Museum in London had a six month tribute with all the vehicles and the props on display and then on uh, the day before the film premiere, Michael Parkinson presented a BAFTA tribute celebrating James Bond. Absolutely massive. It, it seems it really was the year to, to, to go Bond. So in terms of... Uh, there was a tie-in book as well. So they, they actually released a novelization t- for Dial of the Day. Have each, either of you read this? Is it Raymond Benson? It's Raymond Benson, yeah. He was the... It was the then official James Bond writer at the time. Uh, and it's based on the screenplay by Neil Purvis and Robert Wade. It features a lot of references to past movies and novels, much like the film does. And it was the fifth consecutive one to be adapted as a novel, uh, starting from License to Kill. They've done, done all of them. And it's also the last. So they haven't done one since. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Have you, have you read that? No? No, I did... I did read that Benson took great lengths to make the book more realistic than the film. Um, right, okay. And something yeah. that he didn't have to go to, to great lengths. Well, <laughs> yeah, he had to go to great lengths. Um, 
But one thing that he looked at, which had never really occurred to me before, was he he put an explanation in for how the Aston Martin tyres were able to be invisible. Because obviously, the Aston Martin, they talk about the bodywork being invisible, but the car tyres... Uh, how do you do oh, that? And he I hadn't even, put, I hadn't even thought about that. He put an explanation yeah. in for that. That's ruined my day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is the explanation? Well, it said it's got some sort of like thing that comes out from the hubcap that covers up the tyres that reflects the light. Oh, that's worse. <laughs> I'd rather just not think about it. <laughs> so, well, what did the critics think? Well, with that in mind, let's move on to the response. Um, so I didn't remember this. So when I when I saw Dino for the first time, I hated it. I remember getting annoyed by the film, but I, I don't think it, it didn't do too badly from from the critics at the time. Um, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got a fifty six percent based on two hundred twenty reviews, and uh, an average rating is uh, six point one out of ten. Um, and the critics at the time, there were loads of. Um, Loads of references to sort of reviews. This is a good thing about doing one of the newer Bond films. You can find a lot of this stuff. Film uh, film threat praised the film as uh, the best of the series to star Piers Brosnan, uh, the most satisfying instalment of the franchise in recent memory. Seems like a bold statement. Uh, CountingDown.com said Lee Tamahori created a magnificently balanced, uh, magnificently balanced the film so that it keeps true to the Bond legend, makes references to the classic films that preceded it, but also injects a new zest to it all. Entertainment Weekly uh, gave a positive review saying, Tamahori, a true filmmaker, has re-established the series Pop Sensuality. New York Times called it the best of the James Bond series since The Spy Who Loved Me. Wow. Uh, Roger Eber, um, who we mentioned in every one of these, gave it three stars out of four and said, this movie has the usual impossible stunts, but it has just as many scenes that are lean and tough enough to fit into any modern action movie. Real Views said, this is a train wreck of an action film, a stupefying attempt by the filmmakers to force feed James Bond into the mindless mould and throw 40 years of cinematic history down the toilet in favour of bright flashes and loud bangs. Um, talking about the action sequences, they said, Dine of the Day is an exercise in loud explosions and excruciatingly bad special effects. The CGI work in the movie is an order of magnitude worse than anything I have seen in a major motion picture, coupled with lousy production design. Dine of the Day looks like it was done on the cheap, which is ironic. Mm. Um, then of course we've already mentioned Roger Moore Uh, he he wasn't a big fan of it at all and one of the biggest uh, sort of criticisms it got at the time was the product placement which was just enormous the the BBC, the Time Time uh, Time and Reuters all called the film jokingly by another day because it had so much product placement in it and then obviously in Casino Royale they lessened the amount of product placement in comparison to what was in there in Die Another Day retrospectively it hasn't done so well. And in a lot of lists that are on various film sites, in 2001, Yahoo survey, actually, Butler, uh, so you'll know this one, uh, consisting of 2,200 experts and superfans, Die Another Day was ranked as the third worst installment after Quantum of Solace and Spectre. But yeah, basically, so yeah, nowadays in a lot of lists, it doesn't do very well. It seems to be either at the bottom a lot of people do class it as the, as the worst Bond film but it's at the it's at the lower ranks of, of the sort of Bond history of films that you see in a lot of um, polls that go on yeah so conversely uh, despite some of the negative reviews that we've just talked about uh, it actually became the most successful James Bond film to date and it took 
uh, 1.4 million pounds in the UK in its opening weekend. And it was the highest grossing James Bond film of all time until the release of Casino Royale uh, a few years later. Obviously not adjusted for inflation. I think adjusted for inflation, the highest grossing was Thunderball. But um, yeah, as it stands now with 2021, it's the fifth highest grossing 007 film of all time. So it's been superseded, I think, by the four subsequent films but that's down to you know the the growing ticket cost in the end it took 431.9 million dollars worldwide and was the sixth highest grossing film of 2002 so not bad not bad and you know did everything that mgm wanted it to do um but unfortunately it would or fortunately for James Bond fans, for James Bond fans it would prompt the hard reboot that we got with Casino Royale did it win any awards, Brendan? Well, at the 2003 Oscars, it wasn't nominated for anything. Right. So <laughs> there, there's a starting point. And I just, out of interest, I just wanted to see what was nominated for Best Picture that year. And just to see if it, if it was worthy of at least getting a nomination. The Pianist, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, The Hours, Gangs of New York, and the winner, Chicago. So No. <laughs> Not a vintage year, but still they're better than... <coughs> but he, yeah, yeah, but they're still better, yeah. So at the Empire Awards, Rosamund Pike won Best Newcomer. The BMI Film and TV Awards, David Arnold won for Best Soundtrack. Big win for the Razzies, as uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, Madonna. She got Worst Supporting Actress, she, she won that. Uh, and also the Stinker's Bad Movie Awards, which I enjoyed the name of that, so and Madonna won that as well, so... <laughs> She's uh, getting those accolades that year, but yeah, outside of the of like actual awards, it it did create a boost in UK fencing clubs as they saw an increase in the number of people it being interested in taking up the sport. I think silver lining. It's quite quite a knock on, and also um, the Icelandic uh, travel board were inundated with people wanting to stay at an ice hotel like the one they'd seen in the Bond film. But it's in Sweden. Uh, so that i guess wraps up the story of the film but um i guess we should just talk about you know the the legacy and the reputation of this film as you as you've mentioned you know it's it's pretty much now seen as one of the worst james bond films um i think personally it's better than I remember it being. And I've watched it twice very recently in quick succession and have (laughs) enjoyed it both times (laughs) more than I thought I would. But I always generally find that with most James Bond films. Um, I would say with the exception of perhaps Diamonds Are Forever, which I feel gets worse every time I watch it. Um, But I think it's... the, The problem is it's a really schizophrenic film. It really... I think it's I think it's really good, really interesting up until the point Bond goes to Iceland and then it really falls off a massive cliff and goes into a tsunami tidal wave of rubbishness. And I think it just drops the ball too many times throughout the film. There's too many clangers that come along for me. And I think a lot of it comes down to Lee Tamahori possibly wanting to put his own print on the film. What about you two? On the whole, I think I genuinely agree, agree with you, Butler. I am... Um... I do enjoy the first, it's about an hour into it, isn't it, before it goes to Iceland. And I think the opening the opening scene, the pre-titles, very good, very strong, to be honest. 
certainly stronger. I'm not going to say it's he's Brosnan's strongest, but he's probably his second strongest. And again, him being captured, I think it's it's an interesting concept. And like you mentioned earlier, if it, if it had been him escaping, if that had been the film, we might be you know talking about one of the best Bonds because I think that is quite interesting. But yeah, on just M- Madonna is jarring. Some of those edits, the slow mo stuff, I just don't understand it. I do not get the the slow mo stuff at all. It's I so don't know ugly, what they're trying it? to trying to add. It, yeah, it just really takes you out of it. In terms of praise, I I really like Jinx as a character. Really? I, um, yeah, because I th- she's the only Bond woman that stays strong the whole time. But she has to be rescued at the Ice Palace. I mean, there's, she is locked. I mean, what else is she meant to do? Although you think the the American government would give us some gadgets, wouldn't you? <laughs> Well, it's Michael Madsen. Let me just say, Michael Madsen is absolutely pointless in this film. Yeah, I really hate his character. Yeah, he's just there to be a just a loudmouth, isn't he? And every time I watch it, I I forget he's in it. And when he comes in, I'm like, oh, he's in this film, isn't he? I wipe it from my memory every time I stop watching it. Yeah, it's a very much it very much dates the film as to when Michael Madsen was considered an interesting bit of casting. Yeah. Um. Um. But yeah, on the, on the whole, I don't think it deserves the. It gets an absolute kick in from everyone, you know, as the worst. And I don't think it's the worst. Uh, there's three or four for me that are below it. Yeah, I think to casual observers, it it's it's the easy one to say. Well, that's the worst one because it's got the invisible yeah. car and it's got the tsunami and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, Wheatley, the floor is yours. Yeah, I, I can't stand the damn film. <laughs> I I've tried to. I've probably rewatched it about four times in the past couple of years. And every time I try and find some redeemable quality, the same thing I do with every, like Diamonds Are Forever, I try and find redeemable qualities in it. I look at it from the point of view of a Bond film or as a 2000s action film, and it just doesn't do any of them right. Like, it's, if, if, I can't think of any way you'd watch it where it's a good film. When we talk about like people saying it's the easy targets, like, like saying it's the worst Bond film, yeah, fine. The invisible car is stupid, but that's not why it's bad. It's because they just don't use the invisible car properly. If they used it well, it wouldn't be as bad. Same with like the most of the scenes they put in are quite badly written and don't seem to have any point in what they're doing. It's really confusing. But the worst part for me is the constant puns and like one-liners. It's relentless, but there's not one good one-liner in the film. It's just like everything him and Jinx, their whole relationship is based on one-liners. I don't think they have a conversation throughout the whole thing. They just shoot one-liners at each other and they're really bad every time. So, um, yeah, I'm not a fan of it. Don't think it's aged very well. Um, I can't remember ever liking it at the time, but I just can't think of a redeeming quality behind it. And uh, I I got a couple of good quotes, actually, um, from uh, Nobody Does It Better. They say... If early 2000s Bond was tone deaf to what was popular elsewhere in the movie world, it was just as oblivious to its own increasingly comedic perception. And instead of trying to move away from the tired tropes being brilliantly mocked by Mike Myers and the gang, Die Another Day went all in. Which I think is really true because... There's, well, there's a bit here that says, The dialogue is dripping with puns that miss far more often than they hit. Halle Berry's Yo Mama joke marks the pinnacle of her oh, character God. development. <laughs> and Gustav Graves' plan is genuinely based on a freaking laser. Which is true. Like that like gold member came out that same year and he's making fun of all these things, but he's making fun of old films, which is fine, but they're still doing it. 
He, he couldn't have made fun of Casino Royale. There's no way you could make fun of Casino Royale in the same parody way. But Dying of the Day, it just it's just so jarring to watch when you know that people are making fun of the exact thing that they're doing. I think so yeah, the, for me, not a fan. I think the idea of J- Halle Berry as Jinx in the world of James Bond is better than what we got. I think they cast her. They were really keen to cast her. They probably paid a lot of money for her. And unfortunately, the person way just didn't know how to write for her. That scene where she comes out of the ocean and they have that conversation about ornithologists and feasting. It's awful, isn't it? It's dreadful. And then there's that scene later on where they're pulling diamonds out of her belly button and she's going, oh no, put it back in. And it's just... But that's like, if the script was all right, you can redeem the invisible car and you can redeem the stupid paragliding scene and stuff like that. Like you've got something to hold on to, but when the script's bad and those bits are bad, it's almost becomes impossible to sort of find positives in it. Like the whole spiraling madness of Gustav Graves and his electro charged gloves, which at no point, like in another Bond film, they would be a plot point. They'd be like, he'd be building some sort of electromagnetic thing and he'd be, that'd be part of the suit. No, no, just give him a suit with these things. That doesn't even seem to help him that much. It's not, they're not even that good. And also, I never really understood. So uh, Colonel Moon at the start is buying the diamonds, which get blown up. But then at that point, he disappears off the scene, finds this gene therapy replacement thing, turns himself into Gustav Graves, sets up an ice, uh, a, a diamond mining facility, a fake diamond mining facility in um iceland how how has he paid for this was he paid for it with the diamonds that he's got but then i thought the diamonds were for something to do with the space program i've got no idea how has he done that in 14 months gone from being a billionaire to being a billionaire being knighted as sir gustav graves in the film like that script all you need to do is sit down for three hours and just go well that doesn't make sense that doesn't make sense why have you got that in it but nobody did that Throughout the whole process, it just seems like yeah. everything's just random. You, it's just. I, I think you could probably sum it up in that one bit where it's, he, he quits back to Mister Kill. That's a name to die for. I mean, it doesn't make it doesn't make sense. No, he's no. just saying words, isn't he? It's not, it's not clever. If, yeah, if somebody said that, <laughs> the like Roger Moore pulled off one liners quite well because he was a little bit jokey. They they were normally quite good from the perspective that. If, if your mate said it, you'd be like, all right, very good, very quippy. If somebody said that to me, if my name was Mr. Kill, I'd be like, what? What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, there you go. You've probably guessed um, where it sits in my list now. But so just mentioning Jinx again, Jinx was, there was a planned spin-off for her that was being written by Purvis and Wade and with Stephen Frears. We'll do an episode of that when we get to the letter J. So keep an ear out for that one uh, down the line. Um, last thing to talk about we will be doing another episode on Die Another Day after this one with a film critic talking about the film so um, we'll dive into a bit more into the into the nuts and bolts of that but it brings us to the ranking the official James Bond A to Z podcast ranking now we've done special episodes on four of the James Bond films so far this was our fifth one current rankings as it stands at number four Casino Royale 1967 at number three Diamonds Are Forever at number two A View to a Kill at number one Casino Royale 2006 it's going to take a lot, a lot to knock that off at this point where talk, well, I'll come to you weekly first where does the, where does Die Another Day rank for you uh, compared to those four films <laughs> worst Bond film slash film ever made <laughs> wow wow 
So you would put it at number five below Casino Royale 67. Yes. Yeah. Oof. Because I think Casino, Casino Royale, it, it's sort of, I still get it. Like I understand what they were trying to do and like what they were trying to do. It's come out like that. Like the other films that they, they, that they did around that time. Dino the Day just doesn't work on any level. So yeah, it's going at the bottom all the way for me. And Brendan? Second. So it's better than View to a Kill, Diamond Server and Casino Royale 1967. Yes. I would agree with you. <laughs> yeah. So on the official rankings, do we concede to Wheatley and drop it down below View to a Kill just to give it some extra weighting? I think he has classed it as the worst film ever, then we must, we have to. We have what? to drop it down a place. I've, I've, what, don't we have a, a point system for these? No. <laughs> it's Let's do a point system for the next the next episode. <laughs> that make it easier. Because I'm going to disagree with you on a lot of them. <laughs> well, look, we can do a final ranking when we get to the end of them. But um, So we're saying Casino Royale, View to a Kill, Die, Die, Die Another Day, Diamonds Are Forever, Casino Royale 67. Is that where we're, where yeah. we're going with? Yeah, it's a happy compromise, I think. I think yeah. so. Okay, well, let's put that in. I'll add that to our letterbox list and we'll share this on our Twitter. Well, that's it, I guess, for this episode of the James Bond A to Z podcast. Thank you so much for listening. It's been an epic journey for us. I'm sure it's been an epic journey for you listening to it. As always, feedback is welcomed uh, on email via... What's the email? Podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk Or you can find us on social media. Where, Brendan? At jamesbondatoz on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Uh, James Bond Eight Podcast will return with another episode on Die Another Day, which we are all very looking, uh, very much looking forward to, to doing. Thank you so much for listening. James Bond A to Z will return. Thanks a lot. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z Podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Ingomels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.